I bet you've uh, been there before. A man stands up front there, his palms sweaty, clasped around a creaky pinewood pulpit. He stands up there, perched like a crow, with feathers neat and orderly, a jet black suit and tie. Pastor, father, reverend, so-and-so, from so-and-so community church, looks out upon rows upon rows upon rows of sorrow. People whose faces are plastered with sadness, whose every breath is a sigh two sizes too heavy. Eyes drip like leaky faucets. And there's a surround sound of sniffles and weeping and all-out wailing. There's the overwhelming sensation that something like a black hole has spawned in the elegantly decorated funeral home. And it swallows up all the joy and hope and goodness to be had. Pastor, Father, Reverend so-and-so from so-and-so community church has yet to speak a word. His eyes drop down to scan the collection of words he's prepared. And suddenly, the words, all of them, just feel weak and feeble. All of them. All of them in their past tense description of so-and-so in the casket. Pastor, Father, Reverend, so-and-so from so-and-so Community Church. He's got a lump the size of a brick in his throat. And his mouth feels like burning sand. But he manages to mumble. <clears throat> Dearly beloved, <clears throat> um, we are gathered here today to uh, honor the memory of so-and-so. But what if I told you, dearly beloved, that we aren't gathered here today to honor the memory of so-and-so? What if I told you, dearly beloved, that we are gathered here today to honor the memory of death? Death in all of its killjoy. Death in all of its deadbeat ways. Death in all of its fatal and lethal untreatable, terminal, endless ways. What if, dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to honor the memory of death, the end of its endless ways? I don't think Pastor Father Reverend so-and-so would be looking out at faces of people plastered with sadness, whose every breath is two sizes too heavy. I don't think Pastor Father Reverend so-and-so from so-and-so Community Church will be looking out at people of sorrow. No, no, no. Sure, eyes might drip like leaky faucets, but it's joy-induced. 
and the surround sound of sniffles and weeping and wailing is chased away by the ear-splitting tones of song and dance and laughter because the death of death and the death of Jesus means victory over death for those who believe. Jesus Christ lives. He lives because death couldn't handle him and the grave couldn't hold him. The death and resurrection of Jesus has dealt a death blow to death and all of his friends, to pain and injustice and rejection and sorrow, sin, loss, doubt, disbelief, fear, discouragement. And as we'll explore today, the death and resurrection of Jesus has dealt a death blow to despair. And while today we still might feel overwhelmed and perhaps overcome by this black hole that seems to swallow up all the joy and hope and goodness to be had, may we refuse to be overcome and overwhelmed because we are a people of hope. We are a people of hope for a day is soon coming when death and all his friends will finally be laid to rest. The death of death. That's our sermon series. And today we continue with the death of despair. If you're able to stand, I want to invite you to stand today as we revere the word of God. We're going to read from our memory verse, Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears He will remove forever all insults and mockery against his land and people. The Lord has spoken. Would you pray with me? Lord, we want you to speak. Lord, it's your voice that we long to hear. Because your voice is strong. And it speaks directly to the heart of the matter. I pray, Jesus, you would speak directly to our despair today. That your love and goodness would chase it away that we can stand up as people of hope who place our whole hope and our whole trust in you, God. We love you, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Despair, the complete loss or absence of hope. That's what the ancient Israelites must have felt. And how could you blame them? Their city, Jerusalem, the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth, where all that glittered was gold. How the gold has grown dim. How the pure gold is changed. The sacred stones lie scattered at the head of every street. Despair, the complete loss or absence of hope in the rubble. 
At least Jerusalem being reduced to rubble meant an end to the siege of starvation. For 30 months, the people of Israel peered out over their walls to see, yeah, it's still there. The Babylonian army, the Babylonian military might, cutting off their food supply, literally starving the city to death so that the tongue of the infants sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives them anything because there's nothing to give. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food in the destruction of my people. Despair, complete loss or absence of hope in the struggle. And then when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon punched through the walls of Jerusalem, King Zedekiah of Judah, the king whose capital city is Jerusalem, the king you would expect to stand and fight and die for his people, says the king with all the soldiers fled, fled by night. By the way of the gate between the two walls by the king's garden, despair, the complete loss or absence of hope in the abandonment. But the army of the Chaldeans, that is the Babylonians, pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his army was scattered, deserting him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, who passed sentence on him. And there on the dusty plains of Riblah, they slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. The last sight for his eyes to see. For they then put out the eyes of Zedekiah. They bound him in fetters and took him to Babylon. Despair, the complete loss or absence of hope in the agony. With the king in agony as a prisoner, with his heirs slaughtered before his eyes, And the army scattered. Jerusalem was plundered. Solomon's temple destroyed. The city burned to the ground. Then the people were uprooted from their homes, their livelihoods, their histories. Forced to walk for miles and miles far from home. Captive in a strange and foreign land. In exile. In what the history books would later call the Babylonian captivity. It's what the ancient Israelites must have felt, a desert of despair. And how could you blame them? And now, you don't have to have your eyes gouged out or your city burned to the ground or starvation set in for you to understand what despair might feel like. In fact, that complete loss or absence of hope might be something that you're experiencing here today. You might be experiencing the complete loss or absence of hope in the rubble of your well-intentioned plans, hopes, and dreams. You might be experiencing the complete loss or absence of hope in the struggle of trying to stay afloat when all the circumstances and all the the issues and troubles that come your way just seem to pull you down and drag you under. You might be experiencing the complete loss or absence of hope in the abandonment 
by friends you thought were friends, by family members who don't act like family. You might be experiencing the complete loss or absence of hope and the agony of bad news dropped on your doorstep, the happenings that have got you hurting like no hurt could hurt. I bet you've been there before. And some people will tell you, well, that's, that's just being human. That just goes with the territory. Despair is a part of life. Maybe it is. But that sucks. And no one wants to hear that. But the word of God through the prophet Isaiah speaks directly to the despair of the ancient Israelites and to anyone who has ever suffered in the rubble, in the struggle, in the abandonment, in the agony of the complete loss or absence of hope. So let us now turn to the word of God, to a people in the desert of despair. Isaiah chapter 35, verse 1. It says, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. That's like a flower that we get the spice saffron from. What's interesting about this particular flower is that it blooms after the summer's heat and drought. It's a sign of abundance in the Old Testament, in the ancient world. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy in singing. The glory of Lebanon, famous in the ancient world for its thick cedar forests, shall be given to it, given to the desert. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, two places famous in the ancient world for their lush vegetation, quality land for pasturing your flocks. That will now define this desert. They, who? The people in exile or the desert itself? Yeah, all all of them shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. So Palmdale and Victorville shall be glad. Barstow shall rejoice and blossom. No offense if you're from Palmdale, Victorville, or Barstow. You know what's interesting is that people from Bakersfield actually talk with a southern accent. I don't know how that came to be. Anyone ever been to Bakersfield? Don't go there. Sorry. <laughs> if you've been to Bakersfield once, you've been there enough. So Palmdale and Victorville shall be glad. Barstow, places like Bakersfield, shall rejoice and blossom. You know, biologists will tell you that the desert is a place that's beautiful. A beautiful place teeming with life. But what they don't tell you is that most of that life has an excellent chance of killing you. Creatures fashioned with venomous fangs and poisonous stingers, sharp pinchers and massive bite force mandibles, not to mention extreme heat and no water and plant life that could gore you to death. But Isaiah is not merely talking about climate change in the right direction here or the reforestation of the barren wastelands. He's talking about the reversal of despair, the desert-like experience of despair in the rubble and in the struggle, in the abandonment, in the agony of the complete loss 
or absence of hope shall be transformed like flowers and forests sprouting up in the dry and barren wastelands. The people in exile, the people in despair, the very desert itself shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Okay, great. You know, it sounds all futuristic, something to look forward to, a hope that's not here, but uh, it is to come. That's great. All these shalls, the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice. It shall blossom abundantly. They shall see the glory of the Lord. It's futuristic. It's futuristic vision of fulfillment. That's great. But what what do I do right now? What do I do right now? That's a great question. Every verse of Isaiah 35 speaks about what shall happen by God's action, except for verse 3 and the first half of verse 4. Verse 3 and the first half of verse 4 is an imperative charge to the people. In other words, do this right now in the present. While there's this future reversal of despair and the flowers and forests sprouting up in the barren wastelands to come, do this right now in the present. Do what? Verse 3, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Those staggering knees that buckle and shake with fear. Make them strong. Make them firm. Do this right now in the present. Those hands that are weary and without strength, make them strong. Do this right now in the present. Get a grip on your faith with hands that don't slip and stand upon the truth of who God is with knees that don't buckle. Verse 4 says, Say to those who are of a fearful heart, that is, say to those whose hearts race and thump with fear and worry and anxiety, be strong and do not fear. Here is your God. He will come with vengeance and terrible recompense. In other words, it's payback time. It's payback time. It's time for the tables to turn, for all the wrongs to be righted. And all the injustice to be made just. For he will come and save you. You who are exhausted. You who are tired and weary and spent. Ready to give up and give in. You who shrivel up in the desert-like experience of despair, you who sulk with weak hands and feeble knees in the rubble and in the struggle and in the abandonment, in the agony of the complete loss or absence of hope, be strong and do not fear because your God is here. I remember the first time I spoke these hopeful words of Isaiah 35. Remember the first time I spoke these hopeful words of Isaiah 35, I remember I was standing there up front and I was staring down the eggnog-colored pages before me. I see the scribbles I've made. I see the notes I jotted down in the margins. I know this passage. I understand its meaning and its context. There's a a lump in my throat 
size of a brick. My mouth feels dry like burning sand. And it's not that all of a sudden these words appear weak and feeble, but it's that I feel weak and feeble. It has nothing to do with dehydration or exhaustion. It has nothing to do with my prolific pride or enormous ego. But it has everything to do with my audience. It has everything to do with my audience. Because I'm here about to speak to people who are deeply affected by cancer. I'm about to speak to people who are deeply affected by cancer in such a way that despair has moved into their homes, sleeps in their beds, and eats from their fridges. And I realize this could go one of two ways. Either these hopeful words of Isaiah 35 are going to be met with an ear-piercing applause and celebration, or a hot-tempered, how dare you? As I look up from the eggnog-colored pages and scribbles and notes jotted in the margins, I see the salt and pepper microphone there at the tip of my nose, and I realize something. Something strange is happening to me, something weird, you know? Weird sensation like my weak hands are suddenly made strong and my feeble knees are suddenly made firm. Because I realize the hope contained within these words is not some hope of wishful thinking. The hope contained within these words is not some hope of delusion, pie in the sky. The hope contained within these words is not some collection of letters and feelings and emotions and good vibes. It's substance. It's substance. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are of a fearful heart, be strong and do not fear because here is your God. He will come with vengeance. That is against sin and injustice, but also against grief, loss, death, and dying with terrible recompense against cancer and all the calamities that have broken our hearts, all the reasons to despair. He will come and save you. The hope contained within these words is not some hope of wishful thinking. It's substance. It's Jesus. So don't tell me that the Old Testament is absent of Jesus because here we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit breaking forth new life and hope and beauty and goodness and glory in the desert. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy, for water shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert like a flash flood of new life bursting forth. Tell me, who, who in his ministry made strong the weak hands? Oh, that would be Jesus. Tell me, who in his ministry made firm the feeble knees? Oh, that would be 
Jesus. Tell me who in his ministry opened the eyes of the blind. That would be Jesus. Tell me who in his ministry unstopped the ears of the deaf. That would be Jesus. Tell me who in his ministry enabled the lame to leap like a deer. That would be Jesus. Tell me who in his ministry loosened the tongue of the speechless to sing for joy. That would be Jesus. For Jesus is the water breaking forth in the wilderness. He's the living water producing new streams of life in the desert. And I bet you've been there before where you feel weak and feeble, but don't worry about ear-piercing applause. Don't worry about ear-piercing applause and don't worry about hot-tempered. How dare you? Because Jesus is the substance to our words of hope. Jesus is the substance to our words of hope. And he makes possible what's impossible. I don't think you hear me. (laughs) He makes possible what is impossible. Don't tell me that Jesus ain't in the Old Testament. And don't tell me that things are impossible for God. Oh, okay, yeah, 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 sure. Things are impossible for God. He can't sin. Oh, good, good thing, you know. Uh, He can't go against his word. Oh, even better. He can't do what he said he wouldn't do. Okay, that's good, perfect, great. So there's some things that God can't do, but for everything else, nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible. So why do you feel like things are impossible for God? Why do we live hampered by this reality? God can do some things, but not all things. I don't put my hope and trust in a God who can only do some things, who can kind of save me from a situation or kind of like die for my sins or some of my sins. No. Jesus is the full gamut. For him, all things are possible. And we as believers, why aren't we walking in this hope? Check it out. Transformation. Verse 7. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. The haunt of jackals, those nocturnal scavengers, who their terrible wailing sounds. YouTube it and check it out. It's it's disturbing. It's, it's, It's chilling, the sound of a jackal. They were known for haunting in the Old Testament, known for haunting places of ruin and destruction. But here we see the places they haunt shall become a swamp. Swamp? I've I've been to Florida before. It's kind of like Bakersfield in some ways. (laughs) People do talk with a southern accent there. When you get out on the bayou. And uh, the swamps, man, why a swamp? Alligators, you know, I hate alligators. I hate snakes. I don't mind spiders, but no, no snakes, no alley, a swamp. But I guess a swamp is better than, than here, this jackal-infested place of ruin and destruction. Uh, some actually translate this swamp as pasture because it fits really well with what is to come. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. Well, it wasn't exactly reeds and rushes rushing by. It was uh, desert shrubs and the occasional Joshua tree. 
The sun was perched high in the sky and the dirt bike between my legs hummed along the smooth dirt path before me. It was one of those clear days, windless, where you could see for miles and miles. The trail of our dust was kicked up in the air and suspended there as we circled the barbed wire fence of California City Correctional Facility. We kept a reasonable distance between ourselves and the inmates dressed in their pumpkin-colored clothes. But then we shot straight down a dirt trail for I don't know how many miles. I don't know how long. It's easy to lose track of time and distance in the beautiful place teeming with life, where that life has an excellent chance of killing you. But I was bumped back into reality when the ground beneath my tires suddenly turned solid. A paved road? What? Like way out here in the middle of nowhere? Paved road. I was confused. Asphalt. Way out here. I slowed up and saw for myself a a weird sight. A collection of streets with cul-de-sacs. Out here in the middle of nowhere, an empty mirage of suburbia in the middle of the desert. Turns out, and I quote, this is to be, was supposed to be, the third largest city in California. It would rival Los Angeles in 200 square miles of Mojave Desert paradise centered around a beautiful, though not native to the desert, and artificially watered, of course, park, complete with a massive artificial lake. But one thing was missing. Houses and people in them. I thought to myself, how could you blame them? How could you blame them? It would be tough to live out here where your next door neighbor is some creature fashioned with venomous fangs or a poisonous stinger, sharp pinchers or massive bite force mandibles. Not to mention extreme heat, no water and plant life that could gore you to death. But if the landscape here If the landscape here were to experience a flash flood of new life bursting forth, if the burning sand became a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water, now that might be a different story. That might be a different story. But that's God's story through the prophet Isaiah. The reversal of the desert-like experience of despair. The reversal of the experience of despair in the rubble, in the struggle, in the abandonment, in the agony of the complete loss or absence of hope. It'll be transformed not into a lonely maze of streets with cul-de-sacs or an empty mirage out of suburbia in the middle of nowhere, but into a highway headed somewhere. Verses 8 through 10 says, A highway shall be there, and it shall be called the holy way. The unclean shall not travel on it, but it shall be for God's people. That means it'll be marked by holiness. A road for the redeemed. 
The people who are made right with God by the blood of Jesus. No traveler, not even fools, shall go astray. No lion shall be there. None of those creatures fashioned with venomous, venomous fangs or poisonous stingers, sharp pinchers or bite force mandibles. No, no, no. Nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. No jackals in their wailing ways. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion, the city of the living God, with singing. Everlasting joy shall be on their heads because here... The people who are in exile, the people who are in despair, they have no, no more need to put dust and ashes on their heads. Instead, everlasting joy will crown them. They shall obtain joy and gladness, or as the Hebrew says, joy and gladness will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I bet you've been there before. Thinking, yeah, that sounds great. All that hope stuff. All that transformation stuff. Sounds great. But my life is miserable. My life is miserable. Despair is not an emotion I feel. It's a roommate who's moved in, sleeps in my bed, and eats from my fridge. And sure, I've tried to run away and hide. I I run down the hall and I slam the bathroom door and I lock it shut. But the face that looks back at me in the mirror is plastered with sadness. And every breath is like a sigh. Two sizes too heavy. How do I deal with this despair? How do I deal with this complete loss or absence of hope? Well, let me just stop you right there. Let me just stop you right there. Because if you know hope, you know he can't be absent, and you know he can't be lost. If you know that hope who strengthens the weak hands, you know he can't be absent, and you know he can't be lost. If you know that strength that that strengthens the feeble knees and makes them firm, you know he can't be absent. You know he can't be lost. If you know that hope, who opens the eyes of the blind, you know he can't be absent. You know he can't be lost. If you know that hope who unstops the ears of the deaf, you know he can't be absent. And you know he can't be lost. If you know that hope who enables the lame to leap like a deer, you know he can't be absent. You know he can't be lost. And if you know that hope who loosens the tongue of the speechless to sing, You know he can't be absent. And you know he can't be lost. For Jesus is the water breaking forth in the wilderness. He's the living water producing new streams of life in the deserts of despair.
And if you know him, if you know there's hope, then for him all things are possible. If you know him, you know that the death and resurrection of Jesus has dealt a death blow to despair and death and all of his friends. And that by trusting in him as your Lord and Savior every single minute of every single day, you will never walk alone. You will never walk alone. No matter the situation, you will never walk alone. In the rubble, in the struggle, in the abandonment, in the agony of the complete loss or absence of hope, we may be afflicted, but we are not crushed. We may be perplexed, but we are not driven to despair. We may be persecuted, but friends, we are not forsaken. We may be struck down, but we are not destroyed. So Jesus, remind us that we are a people of hope because we have a God of hope who has done mighty things, who has changed and transformed the dry deserts of our lives and experiences. You have taken us from hopeless valleys and set us on the peak so our heads are higher than our enemies, higher than the situations. Give us hope, Lord, and help us to take it and walk with it all the days. I pray, Lord, if someone in here today wants to experience you for the first time, say, my life is just a desert, dry and barren, a wasteland, they would pray, Jesus, come into my life. Come into my life. I believe you died on the cross for my sin. For all my rebellion. But you rose from the grave, defeating death, defeating despair, and all the reasons not to hope. Come into my life. I want to live for you. Jesus, I pray that your Holy Spirit would well up in us a spring of everlasting life. We would understand that we live in a world that is so complicated and challenging, but sometimes that just affects us, God, to where we lose hope or it's lost. And we feel like everything is gone, that we are completely abandoned, that we are here sitting in the rubble and the struggle, the agony of everything. But Lord, you have never left us, not for one minute, not for one second, Lord. Remind us to be the people you've called us to be. People of hope who look at the situations of fear and frustration and worry and say, no, 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 no. I'm a child of God. Saved by the blood of the Lamb, that means I am a child of hope. And I bring hope into this world that is so parched and dry and needing of this spring of everlasting life. We love you, Father. And we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.